Hey folks, Danny here. Uh, before we get today's episode, I want to take one minute here just to point you towards another podcast that I really do think you're going to enjoy. Life Together is a podcast from a group of Christians that you may not have heard about, the Bruderhof. They live in intentional communities modeled after the early church and the early Anabaptists. They publish a magazine called Plow Quarterly, which you may have heard of, and I've had their editor Peter Mumson from New York on my show before in a really excellent episode I encourage you to go back and listen to. Peter is a co-host of Life Together, along with Bernard Hibbs, who lives in England, and Marianne Wright, who lives not far from me here in Pennsylvania. I really love the Life Together podcast. It covers a real blind spot that's missed in our divided left-right evangelical progressive paradigms of faith and culture and politics. So check out Life Together. They're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. New episodes every Friday. Life Together, faith, culture, and community. From the Bruder Hope. That the way Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. Ah, the blood-curdling sounds of 1940s Hollywood. Uh, thanks again for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. That, of course, is not our normal opening. Uh, today we have uh, the second, I believe, in a series of the Christian Humanist Net Radio Network's uh, annual Halloween crossover. This show will be doing the Wolfman. We are all handling one of the classic Universal Studios uh, monsters. Uh, of course, the Sectarian Review is the natural landing spot for uh, Lycanthrope. And uh, I am Danny Anderson to introduce this. I am joined today by uh, Katie Grubbs from the Christian Feminist Podcast. Katie, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. I am really excited to have you on the show. Uh, you, know, you hosted me, I think, one time on the uh, the Christian Feminist podcast, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And so I'm really happy. I was really happy when I saw that you had signed up for the third slot on this uh, on this episode. So um, because, frankly, I think that there's a lot to talk about uh, this movie from a feminist perspective. And so I would be kind of lost without you, I think. So um, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. This is my first chance to be on Sectarian Review. So uh, well, hopefully it won't be the last. Uh, we got to get uh, Grubsy, uh, your, your husband. Uh, he and I have been talking for like a year about doing something. We haven't made it happen yet. So uh, we'll get there, though. Um, yeah. And, and joining uh, Katie and I is uh, Michael Farmer from the Christian Humanist Podcast. Michael, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, Danny. I have to say, I love these crossovers. I feel like I'm on TGIF in 1995. <laughs> it is a really good idea. Who came up with this, by the way, the concept? Uh, it was not me. It sounds like something I would come up with, but I think it was actually Nathan and Victoria, because this is our second Halloween crossover, but we did one the year before last on uh, Firefly. 
Right. And I think I think Nathan and Victoria came up with it. And something tells me you had something to do with that too, Katie. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um. Well, I think when we talked about the firefly thing, I think that Victoria and I were the ones who said it should be farmers and grubses on the CFP episode. But I don't think I don't remember if I was part of the whole genesis of the crossover thing happening at all. I think you're right. I think Nathan and Victoria were the main uh, instigators there. They cooked it up, and I actually resisted it because I didn't want to have to watch Firefly, <laughs> <laughs> which I did. You and shut now, your mouth. That was fun. That was yeah, a fun a good episode. Time. I, you know, I have still not seen it, uh, and so I didn't listen to that crossover because I figured I would be lost. <laughs> um, I've still not watched Firefly, uh, which is uh, shameful on my part. But um, uh, Michael, do you want to, like, while we have you on the air here, uh, do you want to uh, give us a little bit of uh, insight into what the crossover for this year looks like? Yeah, so as, as you mentioned, we're doing the Universal Monster movies, and uh, we're doing five of them. Obviously, we can't do all of them, because there's either eight or 35 <laughs> or something, depending on how you're keeping score. Uh, so uh, yesterday, the Book of Nature should have uploaded an episode on Frankenstein. Uh, today, we've got uh, Wolfman here on Sectarian Review. Tomorrow, the Christian Feminist Podcast will do the 1943 Claude Rains Phant- Phantom of the Opera. Uh, Monday, City of Man will have Dracula. And Tuesday we'll, on Halloween, we'll end this with the Christian Humanist Podcast doing The Mummy, hosted by David Grubbs. Nice. Um, I really am looking forward to these. I love these movies. Um, they um, don't age for me really at all. Like I feel like they are kind of timeless, classic Hollywood cinema. And uh, I really, really uh, love this movie in particular, but I all of them in general, I, I think they're just great. And so I was... When you, you threw this out as a, as a possibility, I think my, my initial response is, ooh, ooh, I get the Wolfman. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, I, as I recall, you wrote back like 45 seconds after I sent the email. <laughs> yeah, <this> is, <laughs> yes, if, if there was an alley of mine, this was definitely up it. Uh, and so this is uh, uh, right up uh, my area of interest. And so this is great. Um, let's kind of get right into the episode. Uh, this There's quite a lot to talk about, believe it or not. With this hour and thirty minute uh, black and white horror film from the forties. Uh, no, I'm I'm sorry. This movie is seventy minutes. Oh, it's not even. Oh, it's barely an hour. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it's it's seventy minutes. It's trim storytelling. You couldn't get away with that today. Um, um, well, all right. I'm glad you were in there to correct me on that. Um, okay. So, does somebody want to recap the plot, uh, or shall I do that? Uh, I, some, I mean, I can do it, or you can do it. Go ahead. I'm sure Katie can do it. <laughs> So, so, so you've got this fella who's played by Lon Chaney. His name is uh, Larry, and he has—he's uh, a—he's a British guy who has been in America for 20 years, and he seems to have come back because his brother has died in a hunting accident, and it's going to be incumbent on him to take over the family estate, which is a very old, uh, powerful estate in a small town in Britain. Uh, he puts the moves on a local antiques merchant. Uh, and they go to get their fortunes told by a gypsy. Uh, they go with another young woman because apparently the antiques uh, dealer uh, was uncomfortable going out with him alone for reasons that I'm sure we'll discuss. <laughs> uh, the uh, the the fortune telling gypsy tells the other woman uh, that he can't tell her fortune, and then she is mysteriously killed by a wolf whom Larry beats to death with a uh, silver-handled cane. And uh, then he, uh, he it, it becomes clear, if it wasn't already, that he was bitten by this wolf and becomes a werewolf uh, himself and 
commits several grisly murders before uh the the end of the movie which do, do we want to just give it away oh yeah surely this spoilers are okay i think it's fine yeah it, his dad has to kill him with the very same cane uh, that he used to kill the original werewolf. So that's the that's the plot of the movie. It it in some ways follows the what we've come to think of as the standard Hollywood werewolf story. And in some ways, I think it doesn't. You're you're the expert on werewolves, so uh, you're you're probably more. Well, I uh, I mean, I would yeah. say it actually invented um, the standard Hollywood werewolf story. I mean, all of this, m- most of what we think about in terms of werewolf mythology. Uh, was invented for this movie um, by. This. No, they invented the silver thing. You could only you could only kill a werewolf with a silver device. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all of the and all the kind of I don't know, just sort of the visual cues and everything were kind of this this movie. It wasn't Universal's first horror movie, or excuse me, werewolf movie, but uh, it was the one that kind of established the tropes that almost all other werewolf movies have followed uh, from from then on. Um, and so, uh, Katie, were there any plot points in there that you think we should uh, focus on as well? Um, no, I think Michael covered it really well. One thing that is interesting, though, you were talking about the werewolf tropes, um, because of the way that, that, you know, kind of different, the genre, I guess, has grown over time, or, or the, the kind of idea of the werewolf, I was completely shocked by the almost complete lack of mention of any kind of full moon situation. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, that's right. There's no full moon at all. Like, and I, I just kept expecting it to come up. You know, there's, I, as far as I can remember, there's no scene where he's standing in darkness and then comes out and the moon shines on him and then he turns into the werewolf. Um, so that was interesting to me. Um, and also I was expecting, cause just so listeners know, this was my first time seeing the film. I know Danny, you've seen it a million times. I, I was not familiar with it before. And so I kept expecting as I expected his initial transformation into the werewolf to be painful because mm. often it's made to look that way in other films. Right. And yes. this is supposed to be the original, right? One of the very first ones that set the tone. And so it, but then it wasn't. So I was actually, it was interesting watching it for the first time, having seen other stuff, that was inspired by it and to see the ways that this one of the first movies didn't do all the stuff that I expected it to do based on things, other things I'd seen. Um, that's absolutely true. Actually, let me go back to the moon thing first and then I'll address something about the transformations um, in this original script. Uh, Kurt Siedmack, who is the, uh, the screenwriter who I do want to talk about actually um, he's actually kind of interesting uh, not only is the inventor of so many of these tropes, but just his story in itself. Um, but he did not include that full moon business in the Wolfman sequels. There are um, at least four uh, sequels or th- at least three, uh, perhaps four sequels to to this movie uh, in which the Wolfman appears. The full moon um, gets added in those sequels uh, that that becomes the trigger for his transformation in okay. uh, in the later in the later appearances as Larry Talbot as the Wolfman. And um, uh, just as an incidental casting note, so Lon Chaney does play the Wolfman in all of those movies, and it's the only universal monster movie uh, or franchise in which one man one actor plays the same character every time like all of the other ones were switched uh amongst uh, a, a number of actors um, including lon chaney right doesn't he take over a couple of the other characters as well yeah he'll play frankenstein i think he plays all of them actually i think he's in a mummy movie i think he plays frankenstein and he's a dracula uh i think he plays in son of dracula am i right about this someone should check me on that um i think he plays a character named al Ucard, which is dracula's pub backwards <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, I believe that's him in that movie. These movies get kind of silly eventually, huh? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a a cycle to horror films in which, you know, when they've run their kind of course, parody is the only solution, right? And, and so the last... Katie, Katie and I are about the same age. Uh, do you remember Freddy Krueger being like a children's character when we were in elementary school? Are you asking me? You're yeah. asking me? Um, I, I don't remember that, but that's keep in mind that I had the kind of parents that, that pretty much only lets me let me watch PG when sure. I was a kid. So I missed completely any scary movies and also lots of just classic like 80s fantasy movies that I didn't see till I was grown. So no, I don't remember that, but that's it's not because it's not true. I just was very sheltered. <laughs> I've, I've never seen Nightmare on Elm Street, but I do remember like Freddie being he, he like wrapped and sold pizza or something <laughs> in the sequels <laughs> of that. Of course. Yeah, he gets he becomes a much more comical character um, in this little wisecracking uh, monster. Uh, yeah. And that's yeah, it's something about horror that now in our day and age, you have the scary movie franchise that sort of takes up this tradition of parody at, at the point that a cycle has reached its kind of apotheosis. Um, and in the werewolf in the Wolfman, the last one is Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman. Right. And so um, it, uh, it holds here as well. But, um, and le- one other thing I want to say about the uh, transformation scenes, uh, you don't, ever, you only see his feet transforming. Um, if I remember right, I don't think I was really surprised by that. Cause I, I thought this yeah. movie had a famous shot of his face turning into the wolf. It was from a sequel. Uh, one of the sequels, they had the technology down a little more, uh, solid that solidly so that they could believably film his face transforming because these are just sort of dissolves. They're like a few seconds of filming and then, they cut the camera. He stays perfectly still. <laughs> they add some more hair. They run the camera. They cut the camera. Uh, and so it was difficult to do with the face. Um, and I believe it is. To be fair, they do it in the other direction. So when yeah, he dies, that's what I was going to say the at the end. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's true. You, you do see him go backwards. That's right. Um, yeah. But yeah, in the in the beginning, you only see his feet transform into the wolf. And you're right. It is not painful at all. Um, this in the scope, in the history of horror, uh, this is still very, I, I there's, Freud is huge in this movie. Uh, he like is a, a specter <laughs> hang, uh, hanging over this movie uh, in so many ways. We could talk well, it's about- Freud in reverse, right? It's it's uh, what would that be? Dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it, well, you get you get you get the father killing Oedipus instead of Oedipus killing the father. That's what I'm saying for sure, right? But you still have like the phallic symbol of the cane being the kind of mechanism of power, right? And so we, uh, we, you, we, we, you you read way too much mid-century literary criticism, Danny. <laughs> but we could talk. You know, Trilling loved his Freud, right? And so, um, but we could talk about the the symbolism of the cane later. But um, this is still very kind of psychological uh, in its nature. And the werewolf is more of a psychological manifestation of, of some sort of uh, uh, ailment or some sort of dysfunction. And later on, particularly in the 80s, when you see right at the beginning of the 80s, when A, the technology has caught up, but B, uh, we're more interested in things like AIDS and, and that sort of thing, what the body horror genre emerges. And with a movie like American Werewolf in London and The Howling and uh, Wolfen, actually, all three came out in the same year, uh, you have these kind of really painful um, visible transformation scenes. And I think it's just sort of a function of 
kind of the the interests of the time on some level, but also the technological capabilities. Um, Am so, I wrong in thinking that you've said that American Werewolf in London is your favorite movie? It is my favorite movie, yes. <laughs> I've not seen it, but I, I thought I remembered that. It streams on uh, most things. I think it's on Netflix and Amazon, at least on Amazon right now. So, um, no, I, I, it is my favorite movie. I, I do love that movie dearly. So, um um, so we've talked a lot more background already than I expected. Uh, let's get into a little bit of the kind of material history of the, the film. We talked about Lon Chaney already. Um, Katie, did you look into this at all um, about some of the background of the film? Not too much. I know um, I did find out. I, I thought this was the, the first Universal one, right? And then when I started to do research, I found out about the the Werewolf in London, which was the previous one. Um and uh, I, I didn't um, do too much research into the background. Um, I was kind of, though I did, um, I, di- I, I was thinking about some way, way, way background stuff, which is not about the movie, but um, I had learned some things um, from David, from my husband, um, the other day about medieval beliefs about werewolves. Mm. Which we want to get into that later, we can. Um, some things that interestingly contrasted, but I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, um, cop to not having done much background research. So no, the, the, no, the, the werewolf of London reference is an important one actually. Um, because that was, oh gosh, that was very early. It was a a good decade, I think before this. 1935, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was notable. It's actually a pretty good movie. It's not as terrible as its reputation. And, um, and uh, it's very interested in homoeroticism, if you're interested in such things. Uh, but uh, the makeup, w- this was the makeup meant for that movie. Henry Hall, who was sort of a stage actor, kind of a, a, a diva sort of character, uh, he didn't want to be that covered up. And so he, he changed the makeup. And so they actually saved the makeup for this movie. So there is a really important connection there. So Now, does he eat a big dish of beef chow mein in that movie? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. <laughs> why, why do you ask? Oh, that's the Werewolves of London by, oh. uh, by, by Warren Zevon. I'm sorry. I totally missed the reference. Oh, you know, he's the hairy-handed gent who <laughs> ran amok in Kent. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I feel like such an idiot for missing the, <laughs> missing the reference, Michael. Uh, Michael, did you? what do you have to say about the background of the film? This is the second Lon Chaney. He's he's called Lon Chaney Jr. Although in this movie he's he's billed as Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney Sr. Um, was uh, probably most famous for originating the Phantom of the Opera for the for Universal. He did the 1925 silent Phantom of the Opera, which was fabulous mm-hmm. if you've never seen it. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is not named Lon Chaney Jr. He has some other name. Creighton Creighton something. I forget his middle name. Yeah. Chaney. I mean, he is Lon Chaney's son, but he's not Lon Chaney Jr. Then when Lon Chaney dies, I I believe the studio insists that he start going by Lon Chaney Jr. And then eventually it's just Lon Chaney. And I think they may have been hoping that people would think it was the same guy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and so that's interesting to me. It is, and um, he had a really—I mean, his father was not very nice to him. This is a very, Shocking. a very broken man. I mean, Lon Chaney's story is very sad. I mean, he had problems with alcohol, and um, and, and he was one of these kind of Hollywood kids in the early days of Hollywood, of course, and kind of grew up in the industry, and it, it was very bad to him, kind of in many, many ways. And and it's a shame because he was really a, a pretty good actor, uh, in in you know the style of the time. He was pretty famous. There was a, uh, was it To Kill a Mockingbird, I believe he played. Or no, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, 
Oh gosh, the other <laughs> it's the Steinbeck mice and men. Uh, he played of mice That's and right. men. Yeah, uh, he's, he's Lenny and mice and men. Yeah, he played in Lenny and Mike mice and men, and so he, he had some range. Um, unfortunately for him, his heritage and his performance in this movie kind of doomed him to be the sort of B movie horror actor, and uh, and I think he always kind of had a bit of sadness about him because of that. He's got some good physical acting in this movie, I think. I think when he gets his foot caught in the bear trap, yeah. I think I think what he does is pretty pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. big. It's not a small performance. No, no. no. And, and he's giant. I mean, <laughs> he's a huge man. Uh, like he just towers over everybody he's on the screen with. So When he first started when he walked in in the first scene, I I I thought I noticed just how much he was he was like slouching. You know, he he was kind of like like bending his shoulders forward a little bit, and and I don't know if that was something he was doing on purpose, if that was his character thing, or if that was just in life what he tended to do because he was so massive. Yeah. You know, he probably made people feel a little bit intimidated, a little bit uncomfortable. You know, um, and it's especially funny seeing him next to Claude Rains, who plays his dad, because he <laughs> he seems tiny. I don't know how tall he was in real life, <laughs> yes. but it's it's kind of comical that they're supposed to be father and son. It really yeah. is. <laughs> Lon Chaney's only six two. I mean, he's I'm I'm six three. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it massive. feels it feels it feels weird to be to be called massive, although I suppose I am. What's weird is I'm, I'm you know you search for someone's height on Google and it gives you the height of related people. His dad was only five seven. His actual dad, Lon Chaney. Hmm. Uh, that's a, yeah, he had a growth spurt, but it is rather unbelievable to think that Claude Rains would be his father. I mean, they almost well, and also Claude Rains is so debonair and so mm-hmm. like yeah. cultured, and Lon Chaney talks like he just came out from under a, a car in Arkansas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, I really, I you guys have to shut me down because I'll talk all day about this movie, but I do have something to say about that. <laughs> Um, but the, in the original screenplay that Kurt Siedmack wrote, he was not the son. He was a an American, like I think a Texan, who uh, was a, uh, a an engineer of some sort who came to fix the father's telescope. And so they uh, they in the whole the whole original screenplay, which I actually have a copy of. Um, he is uh, a guy, and Larry is not even his name. I uh, for his name, his name, and that is escaping me. But Larry uh, the werewolf. Yeah, he is. Uh, <laughs> he is not his name, uh, or that is not his name, and he is not uh, related at all. He's called the American uh, through most of the movie, and so uh, even right up to the end. And so this was a a bit of a rewrite, rewrite by the studio to make him the sun. And so that's why it's, I think some of it feels so weird um, is because it wasn't originally meant to be that way. Although I do think it would have been a far less interesting movie without that father son relationship. So, oh yeah, for sure. Um, and Kurt Siedmack just real quickly is uh, he was a, a Jewish immigrant uh, who fled Germany uh, after hearing a, a speech by Joseph Goebbels. And uh, so he moved to England um, very before, you know, the, the stuff happened and he decided uh, he was started doing being a screenwriter in England eventually made his way to Hollywood and they approached him with this uh, script and he came up with all of the, the stuff by himself. He read some of the legends, but I mean, the pentagram was his invention. The silver thing was his invention. Uh, the, the poems that they, they write are not actually folklore poems. They were invented by him. Uh, and so this was all out of his uh, imagination. And I can't help but think that there's a little bit of, um, uh, uh, the Jewish experience 
that somehow gets emblemized in uh, in what Larry's going through this kind of uh, uh, dual identity, <laughs> you know, uh, literally. And so uh, that's one thing that I kind of want to talk about at some point. But uh, it's a really interesting kind of material history to this film. Um, um, and of course, it's later than it comes after Dracula and Frankenstein and all the other ones. This is sort of the last edition. Uh, I think, it's, well, except for Creature. Right. Creature I was just going to say, Lagoon. yeah, Creature of the Black Lagoon comes later. So, did you say someone's doing that one? No, Victoria should have. It's one of her favorite movies, but she thought there'd be more gender stuff in Phantom. Yeah. She's probably right about that. It would have been. I don't know. There's a lot of interesting gender stuff in Creature. We watched that too. We bought, I should say, anybody who's interested, Amazon is selling eight of these movies on Blu-ray for 35 bucks and it's a, it's a nice package. Yeah. Wow. Um, so if if anybody's interested in getting it, they, it, it has all the ones you'd expect plus Bride of Frankenstein and Invisible Man. Yeah. That's cool. We got access to it too for if any listeners are interested. Um cuz I need to watch this one, David need to watch The Mummy. Um we found there's a channel you can get through Amazon Prime called Shudder. Mm-hmm. That's all scary movies. Um and it's like $5 for uh, a month or something and so we just got a, a month subscription and we'll decide if we want to continue it but it has all the classic ones and tons of new ones too um so that was really cool um it was it was um for us since we don't want to own them you know um on a on dvd or blu-ray it was cost effective if any listeners are interested in that yeah and you the can get a, right and you can get a trial too of shutter i believe for a week um so uh just cram them in during that week. So, um, well, all right, now let's get to the stuff that most people care about, the, the plot and the story, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, Katie, what uh, is notable to you about the the story, the characters, the plot? Like, what what is it that stands out to you about this as a story? You know, I, um, I, I finished, when I finished the movie, I thought, you know, because like Michael said, a lot of times these, these very old scary movies are not super scary to us now, but all I could think of when I finished the film was that it, it is so sad. It was so yeah. sad, and there's so much pathos, and I think that's that's such a um, that's a value of the movie. I mean, there's some moments that are that are really cool. My one of my favorite parts is when, for the like three minutes he's in the film, Bela Lugosi is playing the gypsy werewolf at the beginning, and he puts his hand on his head because he's distressed, and then he takes his hand away, and the pentagram is on his head. Yeah, that was really cool, and I thought that was such a cool simple effect. Um, but the I think you're right when you said that it would have been so much less interesting without the father-son stuff. And that, for me, was one of the most affecting parts of the plot, is that you have this father and son who've been separated for decades. You know, um, they're trying to make a kind of a connection, but um, obviously completely different, (laughs) um, completely different people. And kind of Larry's attempts to understand what's happening to him, to get someone to believe him, um, cause you mentioned earlier that, that kind of psychoanalytic angle, he keeps asking people, do you think werewolves are real? And, you know, um, Dr. Lloyd and his dad both give him a variation of, I think anything's possible within someone's own mind. And as if, you know, you might imagine that you're a werewolf. And even at the very beginning, the film begins with the shot of the encyclopedia, right? right. Like, like yep. lycanthropy. And it says in the definition it describes it as a mental thing, you right. know, that it's when a person thinks that he's a werewolf, right? And um, it's it's kind of painful to watch because you can, you know, kind of see um, he's trying to get answers. Everyone says it's all in your mind. And we, the audience, know that that's not true. It's a visceral, <laughs> physical reality for him, which, by the way, I love the um, accurate detail when he transforms into his werewolf body that he, he doesn't walk flat-footed. Yeah. Like his huh. feet aren't flat. 
because that's not how dogs walk, right? That, or wolves. That's not how a wolf would walk. Yeah. I loved that. I did not um, notice that. Yeah, it was it was perfect. Um, but yeah, I just uh, I mean, you know, when his dad near the end of the movie, his dad ties him to his chair in his room and he says, you're going to see that this is just in your mind and I'll prove it to you. And so he ties him into his chair and um, Larry says to him, I wrote it down. Um, he says, you're going to stay with me, right? Like he's. <laughs> It's so sad, which and maybe I noticed that because, yes. you know, I have very small children who frequently get scared. I don't know anyway, but I it just was like stabbed me in the heart because he's so scared. He asked his dad to stay with him and his dad says, no, you got to make your own fight. And I'm thinking, just stay with him, Claude Rains. He's so scared. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it was just so painful. Um, but the, all that stuff and then that his dad is the one who has to kill him. In the end, yeah, um, in you such know, a visceral way too. Yes, yeah, it's violent. I mean, it's violent. And on the one hand, you know, the, at the end of the movie, it's it's quasi comforting because it becomes clear at the end of the film that Larry's at least his reputation is intact, right? They say at the end, oh, this wolf must have come for her, and he killed it, but he got killed in you know he got killed in the effort. But his dad's face is just harrowing because he's the only one who knows the truth besides the old gypsy woman, right? And so, you know, his dad knows, one, I just killed, had to kill my own son. I can't really tell anybody about this because, one, nobody's going to believe that my kid is a werewolf, and two, then I'm the guy who killed his own son, you know? And it's just um, it's just hard. And I, I think my favorite kind of encapsulation of this whole film is when Gwen, the antique store owner's daughter, when her fiancé shows up, she doesn't seem to really like very much, but we can talk about that later if we talk about <laughs> yeah. the women. What a um, weird relationship. <laughs> yeah. It's weird, you know, and but he shows up and um, the first scene that he's in, you think he's going to be jealous. At least I expected him to be jealous and angry and at Larry. Right. Um, and instead, he looks after the leaving Larry and he says, there's something very tragic about that man. Yeah, it's a great line. It's a great line. It doesn't make a ton of sense at the time because he hasn't started to turn to the werewolf yet. But that to me, that line kind of encapsulated the whole movie for me. The kind of the, the, the prevailing message and feeling that I was left with at the end of the film is that it's, it's very tragic and um, a great movie. I was so glad I watched it, but man, it made me sad. <laughs> Aren't there some whispers in the movie that the Talbots are cursed? Um, am I, am I making that up? But like, cause the brother has just died. I was thinking, I was thinking when, um, what's his name? Sir John is Claude Rains's name. I'm just going to call him Claude Rains. Yeah. When Claude Rains is talking to Larry at the beginning, I was, I, I, I was, for some reason I thought that they were, the Talbots had some sort of curse. Um, I don't, I don't remember that, but you know, it could be too. That could be your mind having echoes of Hound of the Baskervilles <laughs> because be when, um, he shows up and his older brothers died in a hunting accident, I was immediately expecting that, oh, his brother's going to have been killed by a werewolf. Right. Because it's kind of like at the beginning of oh, Hound sure, of the Baskervilles yeah. when somebody has been killed by this dog like creature. Um, I don't remember that. Also, I have to say the whole time I was thinking of Sir John as Prince John because he's Prince John in the Errol Flynn um, <laughs> Robin Hood. Oh, he is, yes. So that was who he was in my head the whole time. Well, it's, it was weird for me because we, we had just watched Phantom for because Victoria is hosting on Phantom. And uh, so he's the Phantom in the 43. Phantom, oh, that's you know? right. So I'm 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 really in love with Claude Rains now. Yeah, he's and he's really good in this role. Um, he has even though he's you know he seems tiny compared to his son. I mean, he has this sort of uh, imposing presence, and, and 
everybody just sort of defers to this tiny little man just on the force of his will kind of, you know, and um, I do think if there is a, I, I, I can sort of detect a bit of a, if not a curse, then definitely a, a family tragedy. Cause doesn't he, the John tells, or Sir John tells Larry, Oh, when he comes back and he sort of apologizes, Oh, there's been amounted to some sort of tradition in the Talbots where, you know, the younger son resents being left out and the older son gets everything. And Oh, I, that's right. And, yeah. and I do think if there's a tragedy, it's sort of interpersonal because of their arist- aristocratic position. Um, I, I don't know if that's what you were referring to, Michael. Yeah. Then, well, then you get this notion that the older brother is so, like sacrificial. Like his his death has served to bring the Talbots back together. Yeah. But then, you know, three days later, there's no younger brother either. either. Yeah. And, and he, the, a much oh, more that's true. Brother. And the portrait of, of uh, his brother, what was, was his name John as well? Um, I, I can't remember. Um uh, it, he looks just like Larry. I mean, they could be yeah. twins, and so there is sort of a um, he is a, there's a substitutional quality uh, to Larry. They must look like their mother. Uh, they must. <laughs> <laughs> she must have been a handsome woman. <laughs> um, but also that interchange when they sort of do make amends. Uh, after they sort of clear the air about, I mean, he's been gone for 18 years or something, right? Now that so so long that he speaks with an American accent, uh, a super thick American accent. Yeah, and, and so I know, it's so weird. And, and so when they do make amends, he goes, "Let us no longer have such animosity between us," or something. Right on, and then they like shake hands, like. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a, there's this really formal uh, like uh, greeting or you know agreement there, uh, and it's I, I when I showed this in my horror film class, everybody just sort of laughed out loud at that moment because it was just so antithetical to what they just thought they said. So, um, well, they are British. Yes, well, they're yes, that's right. <laughs> I think I think Welsh uh, technically. I don't know if that ever comes out in the actual movie, but in the sort of uh, descriptions in the screenplay. It is, is in Wales that we're talking about here, so which is British, I know. Um, so, um, I, one thing also, so I, I earlier today put a call out on Twitter and uh, I think just Twitter on oh, Facebook as well. Uh, if anybody has, we're talking about this movie. Does anybody have anything they want us to talk about? Um, we got like a, a voluminous response to that, and so much so that I don't think I can even cover most of it. Um, if you find me on Twitter, I think what is my at Danny P. Anderson, I think is my... You don't even know what your own handle is? I think that's what I am, but uh, it's a picture of me and like Freddy Krueger looking over my shoulder. Um, if, if you go to if you go to Twitter uh, and, and you can look this up, I made a Twitter moment of, of, the, of the, whatever, the conversation. Um, but I do want to ask you guys what you thought of this. Um, a, 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 I don't know if he listens, but he's a Facebook friend or a Twitter friend. Uh, Chris Buckley is his name, and I don't know if he's uh, the Christopher Buckley who is William... You know, William Buckley's uh, son, I doubt it. I don't think so, because he calls himself a Catholic in the Northwest. <laughs> so That would be awesome, though, if that were true. Um, but uh, he asked me uh, to think about that's a different monster that bites him than he becomes. Uh, no- yeah, I noticed that, too. Notice he's a different monster than Bela, who's like an all... He just looks like a big dog when, when Bela's the werewolf. A man with a ruined slash wolf nature and not a full wolf. Um, the werewolf curse equals original sin. Um, did you guys make anything of that that difference in in the wolf bodies? I, it so was strange. I, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kate. I was just going to say, I noticed it, but I don't know that I... 
I don't know that I found a huge meaning in it. Part of it, I mean, I think if I if I marked it at all, I might have thought that maybe they just didn't want to have to do the full wolf makeup on two different people, which mm. I mean is I guess the cynical answer. But I don't. I mean, that's an interesting perspective on why they would look totally different. But I did wonder about that because it's it's obvious, right? It's not even remotely similar, no. and so uh, that's a good question um, for him to bring up. What do you think, Michael? Well, I, I think for people who don't know what the Wolfman is going into the movie, having it be an actual wolf keeps it suspenseful. Now, I mean, that doesn't work for us because we're watching it in 2017 and everybody knows what's going to happen. Do you, you know? But maybe sure. people who first saw this wouldn't have known that the, I guess it is called the Wolfman. Hell, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I and I've always it's always kind of bugged me. And, and I honestly, I have two answers to this. Like the one of which I, I'm annoyed by my own self for doing this. But let me start with that one. I, I think that there is like a, a technical reason for this. Um, in Sid Mac's original screenplay, he did not want Larry Wolf <laughs> uh, to ever be seen as a wolf, um, except in his own eyes. So he would look at himself in a mirror or in a pond, and then we would see the wolf through his eyes. No other time do we see him as a werewolf. Um, and, and so I w- wonder if he was trying to play up the mystery as to whether this is a purely psychological phenomenon. And, and he was. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Just that makes sense. Yeah. And so um, and I don't know if, if Sead Mac and he lost that battle, of course. And and so and thank goodness, frankly, I think it would be yeah. far less interesting. That would have been tedious. Um, but uh, and there are other werewolf movies that do similar things. Um, uh, the Undying Monster is a, is a werewolf movie that is entirely psychological and it's uh, you don't really see a wolf until the very end in that. Uh, and I think the studio wanted to avoid that, any that kind of cute uh, intellectual approach to this. Um, so I think that is probably the material reason why it looks different. It's just, it, it wasn't going to matter in the original, but I do think it's interesting to, to wonder. I mean, he, he proposes Chris Buckley here. He proposes, in Thomist fashion, the curse disorders relationship between body and soul. Soul is form of body. Um, desires no longer. Oh, oh gosh. And I lost track of where the tweet went after that. It's like sort of a tweet storm that I had trouble tracking. Um, but I, I do wonder if there is some sort of um, oh, kind of metaphysical explanation for the difference. I mean, Bella is not a Christian. He's a pagan, right? He's a, a gypsy. Um, yeah, because they make a big deal about that. Yeah, and, and the priest the priest gets in a fight with the old gypsy woman. Exactly, and so with Larry's inheriting of this curse, he is sort of taking into his body this anti-Christian worldview, and I wonder if there isn't some religious uh, understanding um, that's possible uh, out of that distinction. Um, it could also be that that uh, Bela has been a werewolf longer, and so the transformation is more complete. Mm-hmm. Whereas Larry's oh, yeah. been a werewolf for 48 hours. Yeah. Um, but what a 48 hours, you know? Yeah, he had quite a ride, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, um, uh, I, I agree with all that. Um, uh, Michael, did I ask you about the, the story or character, the parts that stood out to you? Well, we really got to talk about uh, the way he addresses, what is the woman's name? I can't even remember. Gwen. Yeah, Gwen, fake Judy Garland. <laughs> Toward the end of the movie, she's doing a heavy-duty Judy Garland. Evelyn Anchors is her name, is the actress's name. 
he's incredibly creepy, right? I mean, I mean, he meets her because he's looking at her through a telescope, and then he shows up at the antique store and starts talking about what she was wearing in her bedroom when she thought when he she thought she was alone, (laughs) and then he just like demands that she go out with him. Yeah, it man. I, I told I told David we finished watching it and I said, you know what's messed up when he becomes less creepy after he becomes a werewolf? <laughs> because that's when he becomes so sad and sympathetic. And like accidentally seeing someone through a telescope, okay, and then he goes to meet her. And I thought, I mean, that's a little creepy, but okay. But you're right. The way he talks to her, like that he just flat out tells her, you know, I, I could see you. He, he also claims to be psychic at first, that that's how he knew what she was wearing that he, she had these earrings yes super super creepy yeah. and i yeah i don't i was i was very skeeved out um, I, wa- I, I wonder if we would have read it differently if it wasn't like this is the week of hashtag me too i but. mean i don't know i still think <laughs> i still think it might have been a little creepy it's funny my notes changed like i was looking back at my notes just now that i because i was just jotting things down the whole time and everything i wrote about him in the beginning of the movie was very negative because he was being so creepy with her. And then by the end, it was like, you know, just so sad and (laughs) my feelings flipped. But I think it's because he becomes more, he becomes less of a creep and more of a a person who is trying to protect her after he becomes a werewolf. It's very strange. It's like he goes from being almost like a sexual predator to an actual predator, right? Who kills people, but who's not, you know... Um, who's not, I guess, kind of trying to chase her in a sexual way anymore. I don't know. Well, it's, I mean, it's. It, I'm sure it's not an accident that the 1930s, 1940s slang for a uh, for a seducer is a wolf. Sure. Mm-hmm. She tells him too that the cane is in that first scene that the cane he chooses is perfect for him because it's got a dog on the top. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But well, he wants you. to use it as a golf club, as I recall. <laughs> as I recall. These Americans, they don't know what to do with a cane. Come on. <laughs> My favorite part of that scene is when when she says it'll be three pounds, and he says fifteen dollars. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for translating. <laughs> translating for the Americans in the audience. Right. <laughs> Yeah, um, I I do. And at that moment, I mean, she introduces him to werewolves. I mean, before he ever gets built or bit, excuse me. And so. All right. So my question about this, though, is he is lustfully. I mean, he sees her from this telescope. And I do think that that telescope is important. Right. This is Mm -hmm. at the top of the mountain in this aristocratic manner. They seem to be like king of the kingdom, sort of this family. And he's at this telescope looking down on his domain. Right. And so in a sense, from a economic perspective, he does own everybody in that town. Right. And so it's kind of natural for him as an aristocrat to behave the way he is as awful as that is. Um, but when he gets down there, he seems to be, she is the one then that introduces him to werewolf mythology by, and, and by giving him that cane instead of her (laughs) in the moment. Right. I mean, is she like bestowing on him the very curse, uh, that comes along with being, the head of this patriarchal family. Uh, and so I feel like, and this is long before we even know that she, he's going to get bit. There's no way. I mean, this is where you have sort of tragedy coming in. I mean, this is almost seems foretold. Um, and so I, do you see what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah it kind of makes sense. Cause if he never met her, right, he would never have ended up, you know, in the vicinity of the werewolf. I mean, you know, so absolutely in a, in a real way that, that his initial encounter with her does kind of set in motion the events that happen afterwards. That's true. 
yeah, and that that cane seems to almost it's not only his defense against the werewolf, it's the thing that identifies him as someone who is a fallen creature uh, and, and or who soon very well or very well soon will be. Uh, and so I, I just think that that's a really complicated moment in the in the story when he is acting like like someone acts in that position is as awful as that is because of the economic power that he wields over them. Um, and yet uh, that's also the moment at which his fate is decided and, and he gets then infected with this kind of pagan curse. Uh, and, and, and I think that it's a, it's a really interesting moment. So um, um, Michael, uh, do you have anything to add to that? I, I, I was just thinking about, how strange it is he's what late 30s so i mean he grew up here this is a place that is so associated with werewolves that everybody (laughs) in town can recite this werewolf poem that nobody's ever heard of outside of the town it's a it's a town so associated with werewolves that the encyclopedia at the beginning of the movie mentions it by name as a place where people believe in werewolves heard of werewolves before it must just be a remnant of the earlier script where he was an american coming who had no relation to the town but yeah it's weird he, he's really become a foreigner his own land and i mean it's an american movie so i'm, I'm hesitant to say this but it, it almost seems like a joke on americans he he's he's a british person who has been corrupted by this barbarous country and now he comes back and becomes a an actual beast you know and he's infected by another foreigner yeah Mm -hmm. Um, that actually gets taken up this is an inspiration for an american werewolf in london Uh, this is an american obviously traveling in wales and and he gets uh sort of bitten as well and you do have the sort of foreigner uh kind of narrative that i think they probably were inspired by this movie Uh, um katie what did you think about that about my, you know, what Michael said. I, you know, I thought about it a bit. Um, I was confused at first because I didn't write. It's a few minutes after um, the movie begins before they explain that he's been gone for 18 years. And so my first thought was, why do you sound American when your dad sounds completely British? And <laughs> it was jarring, right? Um, and I do think that he has, um, he obviously has some differences. But I, I was actually, I, I thought that he could have been portrayed uh, in some ways much more negatively. I mean, American wise. And and it's hard to tell if the way that he acts with Gwen, if his just kind of overbearing attitude with her is meant to be a reflection of his position. Like you said, Danny, of this patriarchal position he holds that, you know, when his dad is gone, he's going to basically own the town. Or I almost took that as maybe as American rashness. Mm. Um, I wasn't sure which way it was mm. supposed to c- come across. Um, cause if it's supposed to be an American kind of bravado brashness thing, then that actually, I think is maybe a worse dig at America. Yeah. Um, but he also seems to, but he also has this weird, um, humility so that, you know, he's, he's says things like, you know, I know what to do with mechanisms and machines. And, you know, he seems to have this kind of, um, not entirely negative folksiness and humility when he's not trying to seduce women let's just put that on the side because that's (laughs) completely different um but so i I don't know i think i think that i mean obviously there's a reason that they made him from a different place and um and and i do think the effect is much stronger and it's a better effect than if he'd just been some son who'd been away in a, a different part of england for all that time 
because it does make him so fundamentally different. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea, but I noticed too, though, and maybe I just, maybe I noticed accents too much to me. The police chief also sounded American. Yeah. So I was just going to say yeah. that, um, you know, yeah. As did Gwen, as did any number of people. I mean, it was kind of strange, I guess, you know, like you said, it was an American made film and maybe I just expected everyone to sound like Claude Rains because he's one of the first people you meet in the movie. But a lot of people, that guy, you know, the one who kept shouting, Twiddle, take a note. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know. uh, that's, uh, Ironically, the one person in the movie with a British accent is French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the irony. That's hilarious. Right, is it Claude Rains French? Am I making that up? I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't remember. I don't know that. Um, but that's Ralph Bellamy plays the, uh, who I, I recognized him and I looked it up. You know who? He was the one of the old bad guys in Trading Places. <laughs> the, the police chief as a young man. Uh, do you remember? He's, the, a, he's also in The Awful Truth. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Okay. Claude Rains is English. I've, I'm sad to say. I'm embarrassed to th- <laughs> that I thought he was French. I, I must have thought that because of Casablanca. Oh right, oh, right, right. That makes yeah. sense. Um, I I do think that the the whole the story world is very weird and dreamlike because Katie's right. I mean, it's not just Larry that has an American accent. Some people have like these utterly Cockney accents um, that don't even belong in Wales, frankly. And then you have the aristocratic accents among certain people, and then purely American accents. And it's like this takes place in some sort of weird netherworld that feels like a place but isn't really a place uh and, and i it's think it's like ever after do you guys ever see that movie ever after oh ever after come on that movie's yeah you're right though it's true with the accents and everything it's, that's it's so true. set in it's set in like renaissance era france so naturally american drew barrymore does a british accent yep <laughs> it's ridiculous <laughs> Well, the British accent episode at some point, just because it's hilarious. Or, of course, the uh, the Kevin Costner Robin Hood. Well, yeah, that's which I can't which I can't talk enough about. Apparently, (laughs) you guys did that show (laughs) on that, um, which was quite entertaining, actually. Um, But no, I, I do think, though, that if you take that as this sort of weird netherworld that isn't supposed to be real, it does draw in. It brings up the the possibility of more kind of psychoanalytic approaches. This isn't sort of in the realm of the rational or of the, of the irrational. It's somewhere in between. And the werewolf is sort of a perfect figure to sort of bridge that gap. Uh, and I think that the, you can look at it as a flaw in the movie. And there are a lot of kind of technical flaws in this movie. That's one of them. The other one is when he changes into a werewolf the first time, somehow after he changes, he, just changed his clothes before he goes out on the moors. Did you guys notice this? He's like, I didn't. He's wearing, yeah, a, yeah. He's wearing like a t-shirt and some dress pants or slacks. And then when he's a werewolf, he's got some like garage mechanics uh, jumpsuit on, and he's walking across the moors. Hey, <laughs> yeah. you gotta, you gotta have style. So, so there are some technical flaws. Uh, I would prefer to make something productive out of them, but um, <laughs> so um, and one uh, another. Uh, commenter on the on the twitter feed uh brought up something really interesting about him coming home actually um adam sorber uh is his name and he said um in both the 1941 and 2010 versions of this movie and we'll talk about the sequel maybe later um the monster manifests during a homecoming perhaps suggesting we are most dark where and when we are most known um uh, and i think that that's a really interesting um he there's something about his identity that is 
carries with it this curse and like the werewolf is only is almost like the mechanism to release this curse that's always been there just by being who he is if he had stayed in america he might have been able to avoid it but by coming home by being known he is uh sort of he has to submit to his true identity Uh, that's an interesting point because everybody knows him and he doesn't know anybody yeah yeah that's very true and you even have two um and i don't know it's hard to tell if this is because he's son of the Lord of the manor. And so he, you know, kind of has this power or if it's because he's been away, but you have then these ladies in the town who are super suspicious of him. Um, which, and we haven't mentioned this before, but, um, you know, Gwen, um, is going to go with Larry to have fortunes told or whatever, but because he's being a creeper, she invites a friend along Jenny, who's the first casualty. She gets killed by, um, by a Bill Lugosi werewolf. But, um, after her death, Jenny's mom is just on the war path. And it's comes come. I mean, she and ethics brigade. (laughs) Yes. Well, and interestingly, they show up. She shows up to berate Gwen, um, you know, saying things like, where were you when my daughter was killed? Seriously, I want to know exactly what you were doing out in the woods with that young man who's not your fiance. Right. Like Max judgment. By the way, not Um, an unreasonable question. It's not. I mean, that's the thing, you know, and not just because she's a grieving mother, but she kind of has a point, (laughs) you know, Gwen, um, which because and I have to say too, horror movie tropes in this movie don't exactly work right because it's the girl who's just along as the third wheel who gets killed immediately. And the quote would be more kind of not I mean, we don't see anything happen, but more quote sexually transgressive girl, the one who's out with this man who's not her fiance and says, sure, I'll walk with you um, in the woods by ourselves and makes eyes at him. Then she makes it to the end, you know, with her still possessing her fiance and, you know, seemingly, um, you know, now she's going to be able to marry him, whatever. It's just interesting that um the way that those dynamics work because you have these women in the town who they're you know they're very suspicious of Gwen because she was the one who took Jenny out there Jenny got killed they're also very suspicious of Larry and kind of standing on the church steps gossiping about him and that was one of the saddest parts to me too when he goes to church and he can't go inside what everybody keeps like there's that wonderful panning shot of everybody looking back at him row Mm -hmm. by row yep it's just it, it's painful, right? Every it's just the surveillance. Everyone's looking at him, and um, nobody, you know, everybody's heard about him. Everybody's heard what happened, but nobody's totally sure is he a murderer or not. Um, and it's very. Um, and also, I will just say too, one other thing about the women, and then I'm going to be quiet about the female characters. But um, I do have to say that there's a lot of patriarchy happening with Larry and his dad in, in this movie. But um, also, I think Gwen's dad is kind of an anti-patriarchal miracle because he appears to have complete trust in her. Totally. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, he um, I, I, I'm one might expect him to be suspicious of her. Why did you go with Larry? What about your fiance? Yeah, like, about that? <laughs> It's kind of mind blowing. I couldn't believe that. I kept waiting for him to to say something besides, I trust my daughter. You know, if she felt like it was okay, it was okay. I Maybe mean, that, he just really hates Jenny's mom. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's possible, you know, or I mean, or maybe he seriously just knows her, his daughter really well and thinks, you know, the choices that she makes for herself, I, you know, will make her happy. It's so I'll go along with what she wants. It's just, it was kind of strange. Also, she's a motherless girl right we don't ever see her mom and then you have all these other moms who come to berate her it's all very interesting but um that's all i'm going to say about that because i could that's the part i could talk about all day 
I was going to say that Jenny must be the great aunt of Barb from Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is very true, actually. There, yeah. Oh, man, that is a really good she, parallel. She's the Barb. Yeah. Okay, I haven't seen Stranger Things yet, so I'll have to take your word for it. Oh, um, well, I hope I didn't spoil anything. No, no it's no. okay. I mean, I don't mind if, if I get... I, but we, as we talked before we started recording, I'm, I'm very squeamish when it comes to anything remotely creepy, so I haven't watched Stranger Things yet. I'm kind of sealing myself for it. Um, but Are it's you okay. on that CFP episode about Stranger Things? No, I didn't. I didn't sign on because then I would be forced to watch it right like right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I'm going to wait a little bit longer um, and see if I feel like I can handle it or not. Uh, it's quite good. Um, you should you should catch it at some point. It's it's really interesting. Um, it really feels like the '80s to me. And I was born in 1982, so like most of my most of my memories of the '80s are very emotive. They're not. I have images, not like memories exactly but like that that show exists in this weird twilight that the 80s feel like to me i as someone who lived through the 80s i i never saw it particularly that barb character i that i knew that person like I, that was she was i don't i can go on about stranger things this episode is not about that right but uh they, that show does capture the 80s something essential about it and it's not just by mimicking aesthetics there's something also kind of zeitgeisty about what it what it's able to put on on screen uh in a really really like profound way it's amazing actually in that way um but let's get back to <laughs> back to the wolfman and i think that uh i am in no rush to get you uh katie to stop talking about the the gender issues in this because i think yeah. they're, they're really interesting and and i think that they're really kind of indicative of the time that they this film was made right i mean i think isn't it the isn't the ending of the film when sir john has to sort of tragically kill um larry with that cane and if, uh, i am not embarrassed to see it as a phallic symbol. I think that's probably that's what they had in mind when they when they used it as the as the, as the object. Um, uh, he's restoring patriarchal order, right? I, and so I think this movie is all about the reestablishment of patriarchy against um, a feminine threat of some sort. Well, um, he's restoring patriarchal order, but he's also cutting off his own family. Like the 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 line is now going to end with him because he killed the last descendant. Uh, that's that's true enough. So, so he's he's yeah. he's reinforcing patriarchal order at the same time he's destroying it. Um, at least that line of it for sure. That's true. Um, are you guys so uh, maybe? <laughs> Maybe not everybody knows this. <laughs> maybe maybe it's just me that uh, is aware that people read werewolves as a as a feminine um, body and not a masculine body. Have you? Are you guys aware of this? I was yeah. not aware of that. I've heard a little bit about it because of the moon. That's part of it. Well, uh, it's it's it. Go, well, go ahead, Gainey. No, no, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, and I, I feel like if I had to put my finger on it, I think it's the um, it's the in some ways unmanageable uncontrollable bodily changes that happen with on a regular schedule right is what it is right so it's almost like a pms metaphor kind of um in some ways but that's kind of how i've heard it couched before and that'd be what i would say absolutely right and so you're on this sort of monthly cycle uh not in this movie of course but um but in this movie it coincides at least poetically with when the wolf bane blooms let me can i play i have the the poem uh there's a poem that i want some want to talk about it everybody in in talbot's castle knows yes everyone knows this uh and, and gwen is going to recite it for us right now Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night 
may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Um, and that's sort of the uh, a poem that uh, Sead Mac invented for this show or this movie. But I, there is a flower involved with his transformation, even if it isn't the moon. And so there is some sort of uh, feminization or feminized imagery, at least, um, that is associated with the werewolf on that level. But also, uh, and not to bore my audiences who didn't suffer through grad school like we all did, but um, <laughs> when you, um, uh, if you ever go back and read your Kristeva, uh, like uh, in sort of this feminist psychoanalytic tradition of, of literary criticism or of criticism, there's uh, literary theory. There's a um, uh, an association of nature as feminine, right, and and monstrous. Um, there's a, a great book by Barbara Creed called The Monstrous Feminine, which reads horror films from this perspective. And if nature is therefore feminine, when Larry takes on this kind of anti-civilized um, natural aspects, his body is therefore feminized, right? Uh, and as a, as a werewolf, even though it seems like pure id kind of uh, like male rage, um, but it's actually kind of feminine rage from that perspective. And so that works for me when he has to beat that out of him with the cane, right? Um, with the phallic uh, object that, that he's holding. I, I think that that is actually a pretty compelling reading of the werewolf's body as being a feminine one. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I'll see you, Kristeva. And uh, <laughs> I was going to say raise you somebody, but now I can't remember what her name is. Susan Bordeaux. Okay. Um, the history, the history of Western philosophy, beginning with Descartes, codes all bodies as female so so the man the man gets the mind and the woman gets the body mm. and so the fact that he becomes his, his body becomes important <laughs> and the fact that he he loses his mind he no longer has a conscious mind when he's acting as the werewolf i, I think that backs up your your reading as 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 the body being feminized it's interesting what you said too about the the body or, or as nature as being feminized because you have this big emphasis at the beginning of the film on his dad having done research and experiments and they have the telescope and Larry's good with mechanisms right yeah. and so there's all this kind of STEM happening right um, with those guys we're not bitter yeah. at all though <laughs> I know they deserve what they got you know. Um, science um and but it's kind of sets up a dichotomy then with this um particularly i think the kind of um with the gypsy space is obviously very feminized um and so then um and i think too another another way that his, the kind of his kind of werewolf body feels more feminized is that then at once he becomes the werewolf he develops this really kind of a relationship with the old gypsy woman who shows up to help him and you know um she has this intense identification and also sympathy for him despite the fact that he's the one who killed her son Mm -hmm. right who was the the first werewolf in the movie and um she comes across as a very positive figure but 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 i mean she's she's a woman right it's in and, and the way that she helps him um is feminine it's protective um, you know, she gives him this amulet to protect him. He then passes it on to Gwen, so he does not benefit from that protection. Um, so I think that that kind of goes stupid along with to it. wear it. <laughs> I mean, well, and then you know, and she, you know, she kind of acts stupidly too, coming out of the woods at the end of the, at the end of the movie, which I mean, she has to, right? Because they have to have a, a big climax. But um, I, I thought that was interesting. That um, and maybe this is just me 
maybe this is me stereotyping. When they first go to have their, um, when they first go to have the fortunes told, they've shown Bella Lugosi and the old gypsy woman. I was expecting the gypsy woman to tell the fortune. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was the man. And so that was also interesting. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe just more stereotypically, I would expect a female fortune teller. Um, but you just see different things like that. And, um, I think the way that when all the gypsies come to town, cause apparently instead of funerals, gypsies have a fair and they all show up and there's, you can play games and there's dancing and all these, these things. But when they hear that there's another werewolf in the camp, the way that they react is very, Oh, like, you know, everybody kind of gets the vapors and cuts and runs. And it's to me, that's also what we would consider to be a kind of more negative stereotypical reaction. Right. Whereas all these men are like, get the guns. We're going to beaters in the trees and we're going to find them and hunt them. And here's some traps. And, you know, it's all very um, masculine and so it is an interesting contrast. Yeah. The gypsies are kind of all associated with nature sort of, right? They're kind of. Um, uh, well, they're the outskirts of town. And- yeah. And, and they are sort of they're not part of, you know, the of Christendom, right? They have their own sort of religious traditions and beliefs and, 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 and yeah. And so that, that natural now that, now that as I'm speaking though, so they're Bella was with them the whole time and they never freaked out that he was a werewolf, right? Why are they freaking out that Larry's in the camp uh, later on? That is interesting. I, hmm. I wonder if it goes back to the difference in the type of werewolf we see. Uh, if, if Bella was a more kind of pure uh, version of nature um, because of the gypsy association with nature, he was less dangerous. Whereas Larry's carrying with him this sort of the, the whatever the, the, the sin of civilization uh, or of, well, you know what though the, the, but the, you know, those two gypsies, Bella and his mom, they're not, at, they're not with the other gypsies when he, right. So at the beginning, it's just, it's just, yeah, um, that's true. Bella Lugosi's character and his mom, they come to town and, but it's interesting that you talked about them being affiliated with nature. Gwen says, Oh yes, they show up every autumn. Mm. They're like seasonal, right? Um, well, like they come the, to like town. the werewolf. You know, the only time uh, the only time we see the, the the old gypsy woman who's there in the whole movie, the only you see her with the other gypsies gypsies after her son has passed away and has been killed by Larry. So um, at the beginning, it's just her and her son. And, you know, it makes makes one wonder, you know, have they do they come to town every autumn because that's when it's werewolf time and they need, they, they want to leave the other gypsies so that he doesn't wreak havoc on his own people. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting question because you don't see them with any other gypsies until after he dies. Then they do all come to town to celebrate his funeral. And you're right. My, I think it was Michael, whichever one of you guys said, you know, that, um, why don't they care that he was a werewolf? You know, um, they, cause they, they don't seem to have a problem wanting to come and celebrate his life after he's dead which suggests either that they knew he was a werewolf and didn't care, or maybe that they didn't know it. You know, there's a lot of questions left unanswered, I think. Or, I, I mean, I think the, the old woman's poem is important there um, because it, it, this poem basically says, this isn't your fault. Yeah, I, I you can. Know, th- this is, yeah, play that for Yeah, us I can there. play it for you here. The way you walked was thorny through no fault of your own. But as the rain enters the soil, the river enters the sea. So tears run to a predestined end. Your suffering is over. Now you will find peace for eternity. Yeah, it's a really beautiful poem just on its merits, right? But what were you saying about it, Michael? 
Well, why wouldn't you come if, if that's your view of the werewolf's curse? This isn't your fault. It's over now. Yeah, you, that's true. Morning has vanquished the horrible night. Yeah, Chris Buckley asked in one of those tweets, I think, about something. If there's something about a, a bit of Catholic guilt <laughs> built into this, uh, built into this movie, there's just something where you know, kind of, he's guilty with about just for being a for just for being right. It's not really anything he did. Danny, would you say that life is guilt? I do, um, totally. Um, <laughs> I know you do. So. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think that 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 was a really fascinating conversation about like lycanthropy, and I'm glad we started talking about the the gypsies because that's a really important kind of. There's an otherness that that's the role they play in this film is this kind of ethnic other, right? And so there's definitely kind of a racism <laughs> sort of built into that, I think. Um, and, and I'm sure people have done post-colonial readings of this film for that reason. Um, but I do think that they do represent something about nature. And in this case, it's not all roses, right? This is not the, the noble savage version of, uh, of, of, uh, of the other. Um, did you guys have any thoughts about the representation of gypsies? Um, I, it is interesting how, when the gypsy funeral happens or when, when all the gypsies come to town after, um, Bela Gossi's character, whose name I can't, well, no, I think his name is Bela, Bela. (laughs) which is probably why I keep calling him that. Um, there's that to me is one of the most, um, I think they purposely do, they, they purposely do this, but it's, it's extremely lively. Right. And the whole time it's a movie full of like smoky mist you know, everything's quiet, kind of creepy. And um, then there's this color. Well, not color because it's black and white, but, you know, there's this life, there's dancing, there's music. People seem to be having fun um, and it kind of um, comes in and then it disappears because they find out that Larry is a werewolf. And um, and even in, in the midst of that, though, there's, you know, you get some of these kind of, you know, pathetic or hard moments so that they're having, you know, they're they're having a shooting um, you know, contest, uh, Gwen's fiance and Larry are, are at like a shooting booth game and a wolf pops up and he can't shoot the wolf. There's like, he has like this tortured face. He just, he wants to, but he can't do it. And at that point he doesn't even totally get why. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I don't think he's transformed yet. Um, but that's kind of a, a sad moment in the midst of what seems to be a pretty happy scene. And so it's kind of interesting how, even though the gypsies, I think are portrayed as creepy, there's also this kind of, um, enjoyment of the exoticism um i mean just the fact that the gypsies come to town and gwen and her friend decide let's go get our fortunes told this is gonna be fun you know i mean that in itself is very indicative i think and other than the priest nobody really suggests anything mean about the gypsies like they're they're portrayed i think pretty positively as far as ethnic minorities in 1941 i do feel bad that we continue to say gypsies instead of romani because i know i know that gypsies is not the preferred nomenclature dude yeah (laughs) well that's what the movie calls them gypsies that's what they're called yeah um and what does the priest say so this is this is a scene that i wanted to talk about maybe this is a good transition into that part of the show i thought we could yeah i thought we could talk about a scene and for one that stands out to me is bela's um, burial like well it's not his burial but when he's at the the uh, in the morgue basically um, and Mileva his mother uh, played Mar- Maria Uspenskaya is the uh, is the actress she's really wonderful she's like she looks like she's about 
four foot eight and, <laughs> and 62 pounds or something, but, uh, her face is just wonderful. And, uh, and, and her performance is great, but she's in there talking to the priest about Bela and the priest wants some sort of, you know, Christian burial. And she refuses and tells him about the, uh, the gypsies way of doing things. And he says something like, um, dealing with superstition is as hard as dealing with Satan himself or some fighting against Satan himself, like not even realizing that this is also kind of a metaphysical belief of his. Right. And so, um, to, to, I guess to distinguish superstition from Satan is, is I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but, uh, what did you guys make of that scene? This is, and Larry comes upon the scene um, and looks at the body and sort of has a breakdown because um, he's the one who killed him. The, honestly, the first thing I noticed about that scene, because I was kind of, you know, making notes of, of ways that the film talked about religion. But I it stuck out to me that um, Larry, who we've not been told is in any way a religious person, but he takes off his hat when he comes into the crypt, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. Right. Um, as you as he would going into church. Um but I thought that um, it is an interesting scene because you get to see her almost kind of preternatural serenity. Yeah. And I think she has that through the whole movie. There's this imperturbability and, and um, peacefulness about her. And, you know, the, the priest is kind of harumphing at her, you know, about pagan superstition and all this stuff. And she is, is just very calm. And I thought it was interesting, too, that she said, as, as, as you mentioned, that this is something that's going to happen whether she wants it to or not because it's the cultural tradition. Um, you know, and that in itself is interesting because I think our, you know, in general, I would say maybe Western kind of, um, British and American, um, I guess burial practices are very individualized. Mm. Families kind of do what they want to do, um, on their own. And if like people might come celebrate, but if you compare that to something like this, where she's saying we have a prescribed ritual, this is what we do. So it's going to happen no matter what I say, or you compare it to something much more formalized, something like sitting Shiva. Um, right. You know, and so it is kind of an interesting, it's yet another contrast, I guess, of, between cultures and, um, and the way that the priest seems to feel like is the right way to do death is totally different than what she would, you know, what their culture is doing. And that inexorability is also like the inexorability of the werewolf, right? This is going to happen whether she wants it to or not, just like Larry's going to turn into a werewolf whether he wants to or not. Oh, yeah. Fate plays a huge role in this movie, right? And and the gypsy's strength seems to be that they're okay with that. They're, they're just sort of that's part of the natural order. And so they don't resist it um, in the way that certainly Larry does. Um, and his, you know, culture which is very rational i think you have this very clear um rationality versus um spirituality rationality versus uh supernatural uh dichotomy like that's going on and even in the religious practices here i think you can see it although christianity gets a free pass i the 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 part i think of is uh it's it's when claude rains is explaining essentially that you know, some people need to put spiritual names on psychological truths, uh, but we don't have to do that because we're evolved so far. Uh, time for church. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, he says it's, what did he say? He says the belief in the hereafter is a healthy counterbalance to like the doubts of life or something. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. all very psychological. And But yeah, but then trots off to church. Yeah. Like, and, but even when... Do? Even when they're talking about the the, the telescope, though, um, Larry says something like, I, "I'm okay with mechanical things. I can't understand theory," and and then 
himself an amateur, right? Yeah, yeah. He uh, Sir John says, well, when it comes to the heavens, everyone's an amateur. There's only one professional. So he acknowledges a god, but it does seem to be a rather deistic sort of uh, distant god, um, sort of the, the watchmaker kind of god. Um, um, one thing that about that scene in its original uh, concept, at least, um, I can't remember if this is in that original script that I have or not, but um, you actually see Bella's face. See, Mac wanted us to uh, actually see Bella, Bela, uh, in in the coffin, and he ha- he was supposed to have this like wide eyed, just like vacant stare, as if he were kind of just undead. Uh, and it was like written, like it was drawn up to be a rather brutal scene um, for the viewer, even. And we don't see any of that. We don't see his body at all. We just see Larry looking into the coffin, um, and and I'm just imagining like what, how, how different that would be if we see sort of Bella with his eyes wide open staring like up into into the heavens at nothing uh, I think that that would be a re- rather chilling image do you think it was like a haze code thing oh uh, that's a good question uh, the the reading the little reading that I've done about it uh, it just seemed to be that the studio thought it was too much uh, for the viewer and maybe it was because of a Maybe it was because of a ratings thing. Um, I mean, because even with Dracula, you never see a Dracula actually bite anybody. I mean, there there are limits to the kind of um, horror. He just sort of leans in on them. You never actually see any bodily contact. Um, there are kind of limits to what they would allow to be shown, uh, even in horror films. So, um, that's I think a- Dracula's pre-code, though. Uh, that's true. It's old enough to be that way, um, but even even still, um, it's rather tame uh, compared to what comes later. Um, did you guys have a scene that you thought was uh, notable? There was one other thing that I, I I did just I finally found in my notes um, when we were talking about oh well two things one was back on kind of psychoanalysis um, and something that I think is very interesting perhaps window into how they were thinking at the time about treating mental health but um, at one point. I think it's um, it's Dr. Lloyd. Um, he keeps trying to tell Larry's dad that Larry needs to be sent away, right from from the village, and for his own his own good. And but Dr. Lloyd says to his dad, any disease of the mind can be cured with the cooperation of the patient. Okay. Um, and that was really interesting to me because I think, you know, that the idea that as long if you just have a can do attitude. <laughs> you know, in it, when you're struggling with, you know, mental, um, a mental health issue that, um, you can be cured. That's an interesting window, I think, into maybe how they were thinking at the time. Um, it's like faith healing. <laughs> and it, yeah, it is a little bit. Yeah. If you can just get your mind right. Um, but that fits perfectly with everything else they're saying in the film about how anything can happen in a person's own mind. Um, you know, and I think it also cuts way back to what we were talking about at the beginning about the idea of, you know, werewolves, werewolves and original sin. And but several times, um, Sir John, Larry's dad, um, talks about the werewolf as like an allegory for the two sides of man. Right. right. This kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation, I guess, where the werewolf is the the bad side, right? What we, we would call the sinful side. Um, but the other thing that I had thought about earlier and didn't say is when we were talking about these different ideas of patriarchy or whatever, um, I think that comes in at the, the most at the end. At the beginning, we can obviously see the position that um, Sir John has through the whole movie. But then um, as things get more serious, you know, um, when, when the doctor insists that Larry needs to leave and um, he says, no, he's going to stay here. The doctor says, you know, does your family prestige mean more to you than your son's health? You know, do you not, do you care more about the, you know, potential embarrassment of having to send him away than, you know, than, um, 
then your son's livelihood, you know, or his, sorry, his health and his well-being. But then also at the very end, his son keeps trying to say, I'm a werewolf. Believe me, I'm really a werewolf. And they're out there hunting me. And I, this was crazy to me. Um, Sir John says, you're Lawrence Talbot. This is Talbot Castle. You think they can come in here and take you out? Yeah. I mean, that is kind of mind blowing that his reaction is not fear. My son's a werewolf. But even if you're a werewolf, they can't come take you out of here because we have the power. I mean, that was just that kind of raw position, authority, power, particularly contained in such a, an unassuming looking person. Right. His dad is not, you know. An, a physically intimidating man that was all very interesting and then to see at the end his dad then reduced to killing off the last person in his family line um that was very interesting and somebody's got to write the hot take on harvey weinstein and uh and uh sir john <laughs> you guys do that i'm not on twitter <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I would go with that. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, that's a really great perspective. And on, and so it's not even like through physical force. It's like an entirely institutionalized form of um, paternal power or patriarchal power um, mm-hmm. that, that he's employing here. Um, because I mean, that's and that's enough for people to defer to him, right? Um, to the fact that I mean, the 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 captain just sort of like, all right, I won't arrest him. <laughs> like, yeah. I know there's a couple murders. We'll, we'll deal with it. Right. And so yeah. he owns the police. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, do, do you guys have uh, any take like, like strengths and weaknesses on about this film? I've talked about some of the formal weaknesses, but um, do you guys have any ideas about what works with it and what sort of doesn't? I think much more than the other universal movies that I've seen, even more so than, creature this is a b movie it uh i i I don't think it strives toward art the way something like the mummy for example the mummy the mummy wants really hard to be a deep movie Mm. i don't think i don't think the wolfman wants really hard to be a deep movie and and there's things in it draw out but i i really see this as a as a as a b picture i can see that i think a lot of what's interesting in it are simply is like basically symptomatic of its time yeah right it just sort of right. emerges unknowingly sort of out of its time i think i can i can buy that uh katie what do you think i i think you're probably right about that um i i haven't watched the mummy quite as recently but um but thinking back i think you're right that and, and that's i think that's what makes this movie so great though is that i think it is decidedly a b movie and it's not trying to be too deep but at the same time you have these moments of intense pathos that you know um catch i caught me off guard right so that um i mean obviously like we've spent how long tonight talking about you know deeper themes that we can kind of find in the film so i think in that way it probably rises above some others of its kind other you know kind of scary b movies and um and for that i think it's interesting and i think as far as what works and what doesn't i think that visually a lot of this movie works i think i kept thinking every time they went into the woods and there's mist all over the ground that was very effective um it was not it was not a complicated type of shot but the atmospheres in this film i think are very effective very wuthering heights yeah it is very (laughs) or hand the baskervilles right um the kind of you know um that kind of misty edge of the wilderness kind of feeling um i think that 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 those parts worked very well as far as what didn't work um, I mean, obviously, yeah, because of the technology they had to work with at the time, some of the 
some of the transformations. Um, I thought that the reverse transformation of him turning back into a human after he's killed at the end of the movie was probably the most effective one for me of the transformations. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and in part just because it's a very effect- affecting scene. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I really, I, I thought a lot about this movie after I finished watching it. And I don't always do that with B movies. So I think that it mostly works. Maybe it's an A minus movie. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, no, I, I do. I Critics have not done near as, uh, near what they've done. Literally, you know, sort of film scholars have not done nearly what they've done with Dracula and Frankenstein with this movie. This is sort of a kind of a, a rather under uh, theorized <laughs> film. Uh, for I think the reasons that you're showing, it doesn't seem to have the polish or the kind of uh, intent. Some of that is, I mean, George Wagner is the director of this. He was he was not sort of an, an auteur uh, in the way that the uh, 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 Browning, Browning, yeah, Browning was, or somebody like that, right? And, and so, and the Universal cycle had already sort of run its course quite a bit before we get to this, right? We've already even seen Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, and so um, there's already sort of uh, an exhaustion <laughs> of the of the genre, I think, by the time you get here. Um, and maybe it's just that I love werewolves, and so this is sort of my favorite of all of them, though, anyway, in spite of all that. Um, and I do have to do one thing before we leave. Uh, I had conflicting requests. Um, Brandon Moss uh, on Twitter asked me specifically, please don't remind us of the uh, 2010 Benicio Del Toro version of this movie. While Adam <laughs> Sorkin... attempt at rebooting the Universal franchise. It was, the, it, mummy, the mummy flopped like a dead fish. I know. Well, I'll t- I, have a reason. This year. I have a reason for that. I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, but Adam Sorber, again, um, he actually dared me to say something, <laughs> if I could, nice about that movie. And I, <laughs> and I actually think that movie is really underrated. I think that it because it, 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 it carries with it this sort of... Um, I mean, Anthony Hopkins, it's late Anthony Hopkins, right? And he's obviously mugging, you know, most of the movie, right? Um, But that movie actually attempted to be a horror film, right? And that's what The Mummy did not do. This this new, this dark universal, dark universe of they're trying to reboot all these monster movies. What they're making is action movies. Uh, Even to the point where I read that the the actor that is supposed to play the Larry Talbot character is The Rock, right? For the, for the, that's the idea that they're they're looking at. They're making- Really? Oh, this like is, I, I, I love The Rock, but no, no. And, and I think when you look at that movie, I dare anybody to look at that 2010 version of this again. Benicio del Toro is awesome in this role, um, and he's the right pick. I mean, like, like if you were gonna pick a, an actor to be Larry Talbot, Benicio del Toro is a perfectly respectable choice. I didn't see the 2010; it, it looked too scary. For it's me. very good. It's quite gory, right? Um, and I think it's a That's little. That's why I didn't see it. It looked like it would be too intense. Yeah, it's a little effect heavy. But all of the little problems that we've noticed here about this movie, they have stylistically corrected. So the, the brother who dies. Um, is killed by a werewolf on the moors, right? And that's what brings Larry back. Um, the werewolf in this movie can walk upright or like a, run like a wolf on its all fours. And so it, it covers over some of these kind of formal, like, like sloppiness of the first movie. But more importantly, I think it really, uh, and Adam probably thinks I'm trying too hard here to justify this movie, but I think it's really interesting in that this movie, the, the original version is an utter kind of just, 
symptomatic expression of paternal power like that it, you would expect in the 1940s, right? Um, the, the remake actually tries to turn that on its head. So Sir John, played by Anthony Hopkins, and I'm going to spoil this uh, if you haven't seen the movie, um, he is actually the first werewolf himself, right? He is the source of the evil himself. Um, when Larry gets the stick, the, the cane on the train on, on the way back home, um, it is as if he is being bestowed with a curse. Uh, it's like there's something very dark and, and foreboding about him getting, getting this paternal stick. And that actually becomes synonymous with whoever gets this curse is sort of saddled with um, patriarchy. It's not uh, to their benefit anymore. This movie is a, a complete critique of patriarchy. Uh, and, and I think it's really... Typical anti-male feminazi <laughs> propaganda. But it's, but it's really interesting. And I think that um, now, just from a, a tech, I'm 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 a gushing fanboy about this one. I know, but uh, from a from another sort of uh, material history of it, American Werewolf in London was utterly inspired by the Wolfman. Uh, they quote the movie in American Werewolf in London and everything. Um, Rick Baker does the special effects for American Werewolf in London. He also does the special effects for the remake of The Wolfman. Uh, one of the actors from American Werewolf in London makes uh, an appearance in The Wolfman. One of the main set pieces of the film is when Larry goes to London and wrecks havoc in exactly the same way that an American Werewolf in London does. Uh, and I feel like there's a really interesting closing of the circle uh, of influence here. And so I actually think that's a really great movie. Uh, not great. I, I think it's actually it's not terrible, though. And it's, it gets panned like I think really unfairly uh, have, I, I know that neither of you have seen it so you've just listened to me rant for nothing um, <laughs> but did you see the new mummy I'm just curious I have not seen it yet I missed oh, you, it with, you said it was an action movie I thought maybe uh, maybe you had seen it and you could tell me if it's as bad as everybody says well I mean I, I mean, it's got Tom Cruise hard to falling out of classic. airplanes right I mean <laughs> so but, I mean the, the thing is these movies should be imminently remakeable because they're 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 almost mythological. It should be like it should be like retelling a Greek myth. This is this is storytelling at its most basic. It's it's like the it's like the the building blocks to the human psyche. These mm-hmm. these universal movies. So it's it's surprising that the the various attempts they've made to remake them have been failures. Maybe part maybe, and I haven't seen the the new one either yet. Um, but maybe part of the problem is that you're right. I think I think they should be remakeable but in the case of the newest one they they tried to go a different direction right so that you have a female mummy which to me is interesting it's a way to 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 change it up but then also apparently as danny said they've also shifted the genre though made it more of an action movie and that's the thing about the wolfman is i think the the psychological angle is the most interesting part right and so getting rid of if if you if if they tried to go in a similar direction with a wolfman with a wolfman movie to make it an action movie would be completely strange because that's that's not the point. I I, I mean I don't know. That's like which and and I'm I'm a bad person to judge mummy movies cuz I have an irrational affection for the Brendan Fraser mummy movie like <laughs> 2000s. Um, I actually really love that movie. It, it's but, really um, good, actually. It's a great it's action really movie. Um, and it, it's also an action movie. But um, but that movie, I think, does a, a few kind of interesting things with the psychology of the mummy, right? Um, with so that you have this kind of star-crossed lovers situation. Um, I mean, there's at least some effort to put a little bit of psychology into it. But so I, I have to. I, I'd be interested to check out this new movie and see if there's anything happening. 
uh, below the level of the action in in this one with the female mummy because to me that would be the perfect opportunity if you're switching up the gender of your mummy to change up the psychological tender of the film but I don't know you know I'll have to see what that's like when I finally get a chance to see it I just don't know how they're going to reboot uh, Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman. <laughs> it, it'll be uh, I don't know, like Ben Stiller and Vince Vaughn meet the Wolfman or something. I don't know, so, uh, I'd watch that movie though. <laughs> or Owen Wilson, uh, honestly. Owen Wilson. That's who I was thinking, trying to think of. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like uh, it'd be like what is that movie? What's the um? It'd be like the Wedding Crashers, but then but there's a Wolfman. You know. <laughs> Tell me you wouldn't go see that movie. I would. I would probably go see that movie. <laughs> um, oh man, I have so much enjoyed this conversation, guys. And thank you for the at the end letting me rant about the the remake. I, I get, I, I'm very defensive of that movie because I respected what it was trying to do, uh, and, and so. Uh, but the subject of this, I felt like. I mean, I've felt like I knew this movie by like the back of my hand, but the conversation really helped me, I think, come to even deeper understandings of it. And I, I appreciate it all the more now. Uh, as I appreciate you guys, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, any any closing thoughts or goodbyes? Thanks for having me. I uh, didn't love this movie, I have to say, but I sure have enjoyed talking about it with you guys. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I really appreciated uh, being introduced to the film because I actually, I really did enjoy it. And it's always it's always fun to talk about film. That's one of my favorite things to podcast about because there's just endless needs um, to get theoretical, but also just to geek out about the things you love, Danny. Yeah. Oh, but you got to geek out about your favorite movie at I, the end of this. I, I recently got an iTunes review. I don't check that often, but I, I recently got a new one. Someone said that at times deeply cynical. <laughs> And, really? and, and at other times, full on fanboy. And I think today I got to be full on fanboy. So um, I, I felt like a lot less cynical today. So um, and by the way, go and leave me a review on iTunes if you think I'm deeply cynical or, or whatever. But um, uh, I, I enjoyed that. But uh, no, yeah, <laughs> that was the, the late, latest review I saw on iTunes. Um, That's and, awesome. And speaking of film, uh, look for the next I'm couple. I'm shallowly so, uh, cynical. <laughs> Uh, in the, speaking of film, in the next few weeks, uh, whenever it comes out and, uh, pretty soon, I have a really interesting uh, conversation about with uh, Derek Varn about Tarkovsky's film, uh, Andrei Rublev. It's coming out. Uh, take some time to go see that movie so you can enjoy that conversation. That was a really interesting uh, conversation with a Marxist about religion, and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I can't wait to share it with you all. So, um, Thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, Michael and Katie, you guys were awesome. Uh, go listen to their shows, the Christian Humanist Podcast, of course, our flagship Christian Feminist Podcast. Always does great stuff too. Uh, we're really, I'm really lucky to be part of this network uh, and just be associated with such awesome people. So, uh, everybody, uh, have a great evening, or whenever you're listening to this, I guess. So, um, <laughs> so. 